We're going to have a baby dedication in a minute. Before we do this baby dedication, I'm going to take five minutes and uh, give you a short redacted part one of the sermon, okay? So take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. I'm going to just read a couple of verses here. It seems like a lot of times I read from this psalm when we do a baby dedication. There again, I want to make sure you understand something. A baby dedication is not the third ordinance of the church, right? There's two ordinances of the church. Those two ordinances are what? Baptism and the Lord's table. Baby dedication is not an ordinance of the church. However, it is something that we do with the families in our church to draw attention to the lives of young people that are born into the Christian homes in our church, that we as a church know who these kids are, we surround them with our love and care, and we support each other as parents raising our children for the glory of the Lord. And so it's really a time of drawing attention to to new ones in our church over a period of time. Usually we do one about once a year. And, um, you know, it's a time when we commit the child to the Lord, asking that the Lord would save this child at a young age, bring them into the family of God. It's a time of dedication of parents to the task that God has given to parents to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And it's also a time for us as a church to say, hey, we're with you. We are with you in this endeavor, and we're here to support you and to complement what you're doing. I want to just read what it says in Psalm 78. Let's start in verse 1. He says, notice the title of the psalm. We studied Psalm 82 a little while ago, which was a psalm of Asaph. This is a maskil, and a maskil means a teaching song. Okay, so this is a song with a specific purpose of teaching truth. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear. Think of the word incline. To incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings. From of old, things that we have heard, that we have known, that our fathers told us, and we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, and he commanded our fathers. Notice that word, commanded. He commanded the fathers. Commanded our fathers to teach these to their kids. In order that the next generation might know them. The children that yet are unborn. And that they would arise and tell them to their children. Why? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. That's the whole goal of it, right? In order that 
these kids would set their hope, not in earthly things, not in material possessions, not in physical health, but set their hope in who? God. I read a quote this week by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, It is the duty of the church of God to maintain in fullest vigor every agency intended for the religious education of the young. To them, the young, we must look for the church of the future. And as we sow towards them, so the church shall reap. Right? What you sow, you reap. As we sow towards these young ones, the church will reap. Children are to be taught to magnify the Lord. They ought to be well informed as to his wonderful doings in ages past. They should be made to know his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. The best education is education in the best things. That's profound Spurgeon. The best education is education in the best things. Now notice with me what it says in Psalm 78. God established a testimony. He appointed a law and he commanded the fathers to teach them to their kids. In order that, notice the word that, in order that the next generation would know them. The children that are yet unborn and that these unborn children would then arise and would tell their kids. So you see this generational faithfulness. And all of that is what? So that they, the generations, would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. As parents, grandparents, we have a duty and a responsibility before the Lord to devote ourselves to this work. It is the highest and the best work. You know, I read something. I was reading um, an article on Nine Marks. I, I read a lot of their stuff. Nine Marks uh, comes out of Capitol Hills Baptist Church back in D.C. Mark Devers there. And I was reading an article this week about evangelism. And just some recent, you know, analysis of things. You know, and they, they interviewed tons and tons of 21-year-olds. And they asked them, how did you become a Christian? By and far, the great majority of people who know the Lord came to the Lord by the age of 21. Did you know that statistically? If you miss the Lord by the age of 21, your statistics go way down. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord doesn't have you in his hand if he chose you. He's going to do his work. But statistically... If you miss the Lord by the age of 21, you have a greater shot of going to hell than heaven. Okay? And they asked these people, 21 and under, actually, how did you come to know the Lord? 1% said through media and mass evangelism. 1%. 45% family. 45%. By and far. Think about this. In the history of the church, 
the most effective evangelists in the history of the church are moms and dads, without a doubt. There will be more people in heaven because of moms and dads. Now, why? I thought of that some this week. Why? Because, number one, they have a motive. Right? It's my kid. I don't want my kid to go to hell. And you're worried about your kid. You have a motive. Now, we should have a motive for everybody we meet, but doubly so for our children. There's a motive. And then we have the means at our, at our disposal. We have the opportunity to repeat time and time again, day in and day out, the greatness of our God. We have repetition, reinforcement, and example. And we're going to talk about example in the message in a few minutes. Now, our job, our goal as a church is to help you. Our commitment is to complement and support what you are doing. I read this week on True 78, and I'm going to show you this website in just a minute. This is their, the purpose of their ministry, and I think it's a good one. Our vision is that the next generations know, honor, treasure God, setting their hope in Christ alone so that they will live as faithful disciples for the glory of God. That's a good vision statement. Our vision is that the next generations know, honor, treasure God, set their hope in Christ alone so that they will live as faithful disciples for the glory of God. So we want to help you. We, we are committed to being a help to you. That's our vision. We have various things that we offer as a church. Sometimes we don't highlight these, but I want to highlight them for a minute. You know, Sunday nights, most Sunday nights, except for like tonight with Cowboy Church, Matt and Trish and his team of workers are down here with the teenagers. Crossroads. That's a tremendous opportunity for your young people to grow in the word and in fellowship. It's an opportunity. We have Awana on Thursday nights. Kids come, they memorize the scripture. They hear a lesson. They hang out and play games. When I was a kid, I was in Awana's, and I went because I love the games. Right? I'm a guy. I wanted to do the games. But I also got the verses. And most of the verses I know today started into my pea brain during Awana's when I was a kid. We have Sunday school. We have children's church for the youngest in the worship service. You have time at home all week to pour into the lives of your children. These are the things that we want to be doing. Now, I want to just show you two websites, and then um, and then we're going to have this baby dedication. Now, th this is a website that I hope I want to get it to you because I want you to start using it. It's called True 78. 78 stands for Psalm 78. Um, True 78 is a, is a ministry that grew out of, I'll come down here, I won't go to everything on here, but came out of the ministry of John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist Church. It's a Sunday school curriculum and other discipleship materials that are available to you. So up here, 
you'll see here they have curriculum. They have family discipleship materials. They have Bible memory materials. We're starting to pilot using this in our Sunday school with the elementary age kids. As that goes and grows, we will be subscribing to this probably as a church, and then you will have subscription capabilities to get at anything that's in their ministry. I downloaded a tremendous book this week from them, and I've been reading it, you know, on my computer. I don't like to read on my computer, but nevertheless, that's the way they sent it to me. But it's a great book on discipling kids. So there's all these resources. Another resource that I want to show you about, I heard of this through, first of all, through the Billy Graham um, training that they did, and then also through my, my wife's brother and his wife use these videos through their church up in Cody with a Bible project for their family devotions. These things are really well done. I mean, extremely well done. I spent a lot of time looking at these videos this week because kind of the, the geek in me, I want to find all the doctrinal heresies in them. I didn't find any. I mean, they're good. They are good. And um, like, for instance, these ones that they're just producing are on the Sermon on the Mount. They're about five minutes long, most of their videos. Um, you can use them. I think it's a great way um, to maybe introduce some hard topics to your kids. Can you, can you hit the volume on this? I'm going to do like a minute of this thing. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see if it comes through. If you've ever heard of Jesus of Nazareth, you probably know he was a famous teacher. And his most well-known words have shaped the lives of billions of people throughout history. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, those sayings come from a collection of Jesus' teaching that's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. It's only three chapters long, but its ideas and images have endured throughout time. You are the salt of the earth. You can't serve both God and money. Take the plank out of your eye before you take the speck out of another's. In the sermon are some really challenging teachings. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn and offer him the other cheek. Love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. And there are also some really puzzling teachings. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But the Sermon on the Mount is not a random collection of Jesus' okay, teachings. I'm stop it there. Been... I just wanted to show that to you because what I want you to do, you know, is I want you to think about maybe that's a tool that you can use. Maybe you're like, I don't really know how to teach my kids at home. And, I, you know, maybe you're kind of new in the faith and you're like, oh, you know, this is kind of overwhelming to me. So, man, live, they're, they're like five-minute videos. And then underneath the video are talking points and questions that you can walk your kids through and have conversation and discussion about the five-minute video you just watched. So they're just a tool. Now, you know, there's other tools that are out there, and some of you use other things. That's tremendous, and that's good. We're not saying one size fits all. We want to help you find resources, though, that enable you at home with the appropriate age group of kids that you are at, where you're at, to be able to train them to do exactly what we see in Psalm 78, that you need to teach your kids when you sit in the house, when you rise up, 
when you walk down the street, when, wherever you go, just like it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, we're going to have a time now of dedication of some... I think the Lord was pleased by our worship. I want to just focus our attention for a few minutes in the scripture in John chapter 9 again. Now, we began this chapter a couple weeks ago. We've been talking about the miracle itself, how Jesus makes a plaster of mud out of his spit, anoints this man's eyes, sends him to the pool of Siloam, tells him to go wash, and he came back seeing. Neighbors see the guy, can't believe this is the guy. He was blind. How do you see? That begins in verse 8. In verse 13, they take the guy to the Pharisees. This all happened on the Sabbath again. Jesus does it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees begin an inquest. they got to get to the bottom of this bad thing that has happened, that somebody has opened this man's eyes. Now, I imagine the Pharisees have a sneaking suspicion as to who is the guilty party. They're trying to get it out of the God. That brings us to verse 18. These are the verses we're going to focus on today in light of our emphasis on the home and parenting. The Jews, now that obviously ties back. Notice the Jews, verse 13, ties that back to the Pharisees. So when you see the word or the title here, the Jews, we're not just thinking about Jewish individual people. We are more specifically thinking about the leaders of Judaism, the Pharisees, the scribes, probably some members of the Sanhedrin, because this is there in Jerusalem near the temple complex. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. Number one, this is our son. Number two, we know he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Notice the next sentence. It is one of the most tragic sentences, I think, in the Bible. Well, ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. And they throw little Johnny, or big Johnny, under the bus. Because it tells us in the next sentence, notice verse 22, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Because the Jewish leaders had already agreed that if anyone would confess Jesus to be the Christ, now think of that statement, confess Jesus to be the Christ. That's all through the New Testament as what? 
the defining issue of an individual's salvation. That if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It is a confession. With a confession of the mouth, we are made righteous. They feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was going to be put out of the synagogue. And that is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Let's pray. Lord, bless us in your word for just a few moments this morning. Give us insight by your Holy Spirit, and more than insight, Father, give us backbone. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to just start with some penetrating questions. Number one, am I willing to be disfellowshipped by the crowd, to be put out of the synagogue for being a follower of Jesus? Mom and dad were not. They were not. They were not willing to be disfellowshipped by their peers, by their society, in order to own Jesus. Number two, am I willing to stand up for my children, even at this threat of this societal disfellowshipping? Am I willing to stand by my kids in their vulnerability? Okay, let's just do an overview of the narrative real quick. Verses 1 to 7 is the miracle. Hold on. My computer's doing weird things. I'm going to escape. I'm going to come back. And it's still doing weird things. I don't know how to get rid of that toolbar. I need to because that's where I turn on my pen. Sorry. You, I won't use my pen. The miracle. Verses 9 to 12 is the response of the neighbors. You can look at it in the text. We'll probably look at that in greater detail next week because we're not going to get through this whole chapter. Verses 13 to 17 is the first inquest. And that is when the Pharisees come to this man himself and they just simply ask him, how did you get to see? And he said, a man put mud in my eyes, told me to wash, and I now see. And then they say, well, who did it? He said, I don't know, I couldn't see. <laughs> then they go to mom and dad. And there was an inquest of the parents in verse 18 to 23. That's what we're focusing on. That's what we read today. Verse 24 to 34, then, is the second inquest. When they say, he is of age, go and ask him. And that's what the parents say. Then it says in verse 24, for the second time, they call the man who has been born blind. They say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now they're talking about Jesus. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. I don't know. But I know one thing. 
30 minutes ago, I couldn't see and I never had. And now I see. That's all I know. And then he goes through an explanation of all that. And by the time you get to the end of that, in verse 20 or 34, they answered him, You, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? Think of the indignation of these religious leaders. You were born in sin. You were born blind. Going right back to the question that the disciples had posed. The reason you were born blind is because you were born in utter sin. Would you now teach us? And they cast him out. They disfellowshipped him. And then beginning in verse 35 to 41, Jesus manifests himself to this man. It is interesting, all through this narrative, woven all through it, is this reality that it is Jesus who is seeking the man. The man is sitting by the road. He's blind. He cannot see. And Jesus heals him. The guy didn't even ask. It doesn't even say the guy had any faith. Jesus comes to him. The Pharisees say, well, who healed you? He said, I don't know. I couldn't see. One thing I know, I didn't see, and now I do. And they cast him out of the temple. Out of the synagogue, they disfellowship him. And Jesus comes and finds him. In verse 35, to the end of the chapter, Jesus reveals himself to this man, and this man then, knowing who Jesus is, confesses him, believes, and is saved. That's what we'll focus on next week. Today, I want to focus on this thing about the parents. We read the verses. There is, first of all, an inquest of the parents. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, do not believe that this man was really born blind. So they call mom and dad. In this inquest, the parents testify. Number one, this is our son. Number two, he was born blind. Number three, how he now sees, we don't know. And then the parents abdicate, don't they? They throw Johnny under the bus. They say, well, he's of age, just ask him. They don't stand by him. I'm going to develop that in a minute because it's very important to think about what's going on here. There's a reality that is not stated, but nevertheless is very true, that if we're not careful, we miss about their abdication. Now, one thing to remember, it says he is of age. Now, what does that mean? Okay, when a Jewish boy reached the age of 13, he went through what was called a what? It was a ceremony called a what? The bar mitzvah. From one day after his 13th birthday, a boy became a man. Legal standing under every aspect of the Jewish law. 13 plus one day. How old is this guy? I don't know. He might be like some of the junior high kids sitting in this room. I would suppose... He is on the younger end of the spectrum. And the reason I say that is both mom and dad are alive. And in that day, 
People didn't live many times to a ripe old age. Many people died very young. Both mom and dad are alive. And both mom and dad are directly taking responsibility for his care. Obviously, they go and get mom and dad. He is of age. Ask him. How old is he? The text doesn't tell us. Nevertheless, I believe they abdicate. The reason for the parents' abdication is very important in the text, isn't it? Why did they abdicate? Because they were afraid. You know, sometimes we talk about our kids being afraid to stand up for Jesus. How well do we as parents do? I mean, let's be real. How well do we do? They were afraid. And because they were afraid, they kicked Johnny under the bus. Well, let's just think. Let's relate some things to apply. Who is today's mob that so hates Jesus that it just absolutely can't see straight? These people hated Jesus, didn't they? I mean, they were not sitting on the fence about who Jesus is by John 9. Earlier in the book, you could say they were kind of on the fence. By John 9, these guys hate him. They want him dead. And they are willing to get at any of his followers or any who confess him in order to get at him. They are not ambivalent. This isn't like a live and let live situation with Jesus. They hate him. Listen, our country today, there is a similar mob that hates Jesus so much, that hates what you and I stand for so much, it absolutely cannot see straight. Now, they, you know, this, is, this has always been the case in the world, right? It's always been the case. What is it today? Well, it's many things. There are many things we could point at, but without a doubt, the woke agenda in America is the epitome of what we're talking about. It is a mob mentality that will take you down and cancel you from society if you promote what Jesus is, who he is, and what he did. It hates him. And this is running rampant in our country. I'm not going to take the time to go into wokeness this week. I did a lot of reading on wokeness, and I did a lot of reading on cancel culture. And I could take, you know, an hour to talk about those two things, but we won't. But basically, you know what it is. The word woke just means to be awoke. And, and it's just an old word that came out of the 90s that really spoke of an awareness. Someone who believed that they were in, aware of injustice. So we're thinking about justice causes. And so they were awoke to the injustice that is happening by the powerful elite white Christians in America. And so, it then began as an affirmation of sensitivity, and it really was tied to the racial injustice issue when it first comes out in the 90s. That word has quickly morphed, hasn't it, into now 
that word really stands as a catch-all for an affirmation of someone's toleration of anything, right? Anything that is tied to historic Christian belief on faith and morals. That's really what it's all about. I watch, Amy and I watched the news before we went to bed last night, and that was a bad thing to do. <laughs> right? I mean, it was so depressing. The news story at the end was about this guy, you know who he is, that, you know, they, they want to let him be a woman swimmer in the Olympics. I was so discouraged by everything that was going on. But these things have morphed into truly an affirmation and a promotion and a celebration of anything. No matter how outlandish it seems to us that in some way is tied to historic Christian belief. The gospel and morals. And you can mark it down. This is the mob that wants to silence you, and if you stand against it, wants to put you out of the synagogue. The wants to disfellowship you. It's the prevailing spirit of the age. Now let's think about the mob's method in this text and then in general. Number one, it starts by mocking. Doesn't it? That's what they do with the guy. First thing is, you know, we're, we're the trained you know, smart people who run the nation of Israel. We know the law. We are the scribes. We are the Pharisees. You're just a podunk dimwit. They used to beg by the side of the street. What do you know? Right? And they mock. They, they treat us like we're not smart enough to sort through disinformation, and so they got to keep it from us, lest our mind would be poisoned by the truth. And so they mock. They begin by mocking. Secondly, they marginalize, don't they? That's the next tactic. If mockery doesn't work, if someone mocks you and you don't fall into line, then what do they threaten to do? We'll put you out of the synagogue. We'll put you out of the synagogue. We'll disfellowship you. We'll put you to the margins of society where you do the least damage to the agenda and to the narrative that is prevalent in our country. That's the mob's method. Now, there is a huge deduction from verse 22 that I mentioned to you about the abdication, and this is very important. I think you probably noticed this. Let, let, let's, let's run through a train of thought. The guy, the, the Pharisees asked the guy, who made you better? Who healed you? The guy says, I don't know. They call the parents. They ask the parents, is this your son? Was he born blind? How does he see? The parents answered, this is our son. He was born blind. How he sees, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He can stand up for himself. And then notice verse 22. This is very important. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Now, why are they afraid of the Jews? Because the Jews had agreed that if anyone would confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That tells me immediately the parents knew what? What did the parents know? They knew it was Jesus. The guy didn't know, 
but the parents knew. The parents had that knowledge, and the reason the parents would not own this situation was because they knew it was directly tied to Jesus, the Messiah. So the parents knew, or at least had a presumptive hypothesis, that it was Jesus who healed their son. You know, there was a lot of quack healers, just like there's a lot of quack healers today. But I mean, Jesus was the real deal, and these parents knew it. Despite knowing this, they had failed in two regards. Number one, they did not tell their son. Number two, they would not own Jesus before men. That is something we can definitely deduce from that verse. Because then, in the very next statement in verse 24... They say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. The Pharisees knew it was Jesus. And they are baiting the man all along. Look at Luke 12, verse 8. I tell you. This is sobering, by the way, isn't it? Everyone who acknowledges, the word acknowledges there is the same word to confess speaks of verbal, public ownership. If you think of the word to confess, it means to verbally say something. It means to be willing to do it in public. And it means to, in doing it, you are taking ownership. You are saying, this is my, I am confessing Christ. I tell you, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. That's a scary verse. That doesn't mean that there's never a time in our life when we fail in regard to confessing Jesus. I have, right? You know who else did? Apostle Peter. He denied three times he knew him and he said an oath. He cussed. God forgave him. But that should not be the norm that characterizes our life, is to live in verbal denial of Jesus. Now, one of the most remarkable things in this whole story is that this man, think about this, there is so much pressure exerted on this man to deny Jesus. But when this man finds Jesus... He boldly confesses and he believes and he worships. And he gets thrown out for it. You know another guy that does later? Because they notch it up again. The guy's name is Lazarus. Now that's a guy they really hate. Because that guy went into the grave and came out when Jesus said, come out. And it tells us in John 12, they hated Lazarus and they wanted to kill him too. This is one of the most remarkable things in the whole story. Although mom and dad throw him under the bus, there is grace for this man, and he stands. Jesus' followers were a threat. They were not to be tolerated. The very claim of their lived experience, this man says, I was blind, but now I see. 
They could not tolerate that claim because it legitimized Jesus. And that's why they hate followers of Jesus who say, I was blind and now I see. I was this and now I'm not. Right? I was a drunk and now I'm not. I'm whatever. Now I'm not. And the whole difference is Jesus. And Jesus' followers are not to be tolerated because the very claim of their lived experience is Jesus is real. Back to the start. Am I willing to be unpopular in the eyes of the crowd? Stand by my kids in their vulnerability and confess Jesus. Am I willing? I read this quote on True 78 and I'll quit. And this is a great one. I wish, I, I wish my pen worked. I'll try one more time. It won't. Oh. N- notice this. It's a quote from 3 John 4. I spent my morning when I got up early this morning in 3 John. It's a great, great little book. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now notice what this quote says. Here lies the crux of the matter. The first battleground of family disciple is not my child's heart. It is my heart. Each parent must decide whether he is more concerned that his child will be accepted into heaven or Harvard. We all have Harvards. I'm not picking on Harvard. They're not either. We all have our, hard, uh, we all have our Harvards, those worldly successes that we desire for our kids. But the question remains, which is most important to me? And this, like, rang in my brain all through the night. Each parent must finish the sentence. I have no greater joy than blank. What is it? What is it? What is your greatest joy? You know what? Your kids know. Your kids know. And whatever is your greatest joy is what you will disciple your children to. The first battleground of family discipleship is not my grandkids. It is their grandpa's heart. What is in my heart? What is my greatest joy? My grandkids can see it. I pray my greatest joy is that my kids and my grandkids and my spiritual kids, that we walk in the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would impress these things upon us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.